All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to hopefully our third to last Zoom worship. I am ready for this to be over. Lord willing, this is my last Zoom sermon. And so thank you for staring at me through a screen for so long. I can't wait to see everyone's faces regularly and weekly in the flesh. But yeah, I mean, let's, you know, fight to do our best, myself included, today and the next two Sundays to not tune out or check out because I do think God always has something to say through the preaching of his word regardless. Uh, I mean, I don't need to reiterate uh, what Pastor Tom mentioned. Hopefully we can be a church where we celebrate uh, days like today, but we're also mindful of the, the larger body of Christ, particularly those areas that might be wrestling and struggling on days like today. So yeah, I always encourage people to reach out if you know people that might uh, have reason for sorrow on days like today and let them know that you're thinking of them. That being said, if you are joining us for the first time, welcome. Uh, we are very glad you could join us, particularly now, because there is going to be something more in the flesh that you can check out. Uh, we are in the middle of a series titled The Five Loves, and we've been looking at various relational contexts that we think the Bible calls Christians to practice love in. Uh, because as we started two weeks ago, love is really at the bottom of the bottom of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, if you really had to boil it down, what makes Christianity really uh come alive and be what it should be, it really boils down to love. And so two weeks ago, we started with the greatest commandment in Deuteronomy 6, which is the vertical aspect of love the Lord your God with all that you are, all that you have. And that really is kind of the epicenter of where everything else flows out from the Christian life. Last week, we heard the first horizontal broad command given by Jesus in John 13, 34, this new command that, hey, Christians, your mark in the church, your mark as a community, your mark as a body is the love that you have for one another and not just any type of love, but the love that Christ has shown us, it should be shown to one another. And for today's message, we're going to kind of take that general umbrella, but focus on what I would consider a ironically less emphasized, but all important arena that God calls us to practice love, which is to love your family, to love our immediate families. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Ephesians 5, verse 22. Uh, I'm not necessarily going to be preaching from this text, but I do want to ground us in this text because I think it is one of the direct places in the Bible that directly addresses the family unit as a whole and the members of the family. Uh, if you took all, all church Bible study, this is a good review and you should be an expert in this by now. But if not, again, Ephesians 5 is a great place when it talks about uh, the varying familial relationships that we have. So Ephesians 5, verse 22 I'll read from verse 22 to 27, then we'll skip to chapter 6, verse 1 to 4, as the Apostle Paul addresses various members in the household. Ephesians 5.22, it's the reading of God's word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And fathers, and by extension parents, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. So I think one of the most underemphasized aspects of who God is, is the fact that God is not just a mighty ruler and king and creator of all. And this might speak to some of you in the church, but God is actually also a very creative artist. I know that's a less emphasized aspect, 
but he is a beautiful creative artist. The Psalm regularly talks of how creation points to the creative artistry of a God who doesn't just make things, but he makes things beautiful. And right now with COVID restrictions lifting, the places that are getting flooded most are national parks. Why do people go to national parks? Is it out of obligation? Are they forced to? No, because it's beautiful. <laughs> people go to national parks to experience the beauty of creation. Uh, and if you need something more local and you can't go there, I challenge you on a summer night, even here in the OC, around 7.38, just take a lawn chair, go outside, and just watch the sunset. You will be shocked that the same sunset you could see in Zion National Park, it's the same sun. <laughs> and it's absolutely beautiful. And uh, I mean, a couple of years ago, there was a very popular, well-made BBC documentary series called The Planet Earth. And people were so amazed by it because it just did such a good job of capturing the raw beauty of the world, right? Of our planet. It goes from the depths of the sea to the heights of the mountains, to all the landscapes and all the animals. And it really does all point to the creative genius and artistry of God. So if you're an artist in our church, if you're creative, special shout out to you, but also recognize that comes from a God who is those things. He is absolutely cares about beauty. He absolutely pours himself into making things beautiful. Now, with that in mind, if someone were to ask you, okay, so if God, if God, the God of scripture is an artist, what is his greatest work of art? How would you answer that? And it's a fair question to ask because every great artist, particularly more tenured ones, they have a magnum opus, which is a masterpiece. It stands above all of their other creations. So if you go to the Sistine Chapel and you stare at the ceiling, you'll see something very familiar. Maybe you saw in a textbook, maybe you heard of it. It's the creation of Adam painting painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And everyone knows that is Michelangelo's magnum opus. It's not like he hasn't painted other things, but that stands above and reflects him as a beautiful artist. And even though he's created many amazing works of art, no one argues the Mona Lisa is Leonardo da Vinci's magnum opus. That is his crown piece of art. So if all creation reflects the artistry of God, what's well, his masterpiece? I would argue you can make a strong case God's magnum opus and masterpiece was and is the creation, but also the beauty of the family unit. How do we know this? In Genesis, with the darkness being God's blank canvas as an artist, he creates. He draws. He creates from the beauty of his word and the, the wisdom and the knowledge. He creates the heavens and the earth and the animals and the moon and the stars. And everything is good and beautiful because everything God creates is good. But when God creates humans, and I think this is an underemphasized aspect about that sixth day, he doesn't just create humans isolated. It's not like he creates a man and he creates a woman. But if you look at it in a whole picture, God actually in more in, in a fullest form on that day, he creates the family. That's what he does. Right. Because he doesn't just create a man and a woman. He says, you two, you're going to now become one. And here's the mandate I give to you connected to my creation of you, which is the cultural mandate. Don't just be yourselves. Now be fruitful, multiply. And he says, this is my magnum opus because this is very, very good. This is not just good. This is the crown jewel of my creation. And so therefore, both in and outside the church, no one can challenge the fact, man, the family unit is the most foundational aspect to human flourishing, both in micro and macro senses across all cultures, across all nations. The world simply would not exist generation to generation without the family. But the sad reality of the fall 
and the entrance of sin into the world is that, man, when you talk about family with someone or you think about your own family, unfortunately, I've talked to enough people, the majority of people, when you ask them, it's usually met with stories of profound pain and hurt and disappointment. And the reason this is the case is because even though the bare bone structure of the family unit is relatively intact, I would say, as God designed it, as fallen sinners, if I can put it this way, we have, in a sense, we've painted over God's masterpiece. We've altered it. We've distorted it. We've made it altogether different from how God intended it to function in its most beautiful form. And that's the context that Paul's addressing in Ephesians 5. You see, if you join their Bible study, this might be a review, but you see Christians in Ephesians, Paul is saying, you're supposed to have a redeemed and new approach and worldview to all things in life, the way that you relate to God, the way that you conduct yourselves. And then he says, and the way you relate as a household, as a family, he tackles that. Because throughout history, the main way that family became understood was all about order and authority and rule. And this is particularly the case back then in the Greco-Roman culture Paul was addressing. But for our church, we can relate to for sure, because a lot of us are Asian-American and our Asian Eastern side, very relatable. Because this approach to family, if I could boil it down, is this. The husband is kind of the ruler over the family and he rules over the wife. The parents kind of rule over children. And it's a very hierarchical, top-down approach to family. But as we learned last week, what the Bible does, what the Christian worldview does, is it comes into the picture, introduces a countercultural and radical, if I can put it that way, approach to family and how it should function and how the members of the family should relate to one another. Family is a big, big passion of mine, personally. I could talk forever on this topic, but in light of our series on the five loves, I'm going to tackle the topic of familial love in three ways, according to our text, generally speaking, which is number one, the radical call of familial love, two, the radical power of familial love, and three, the radical purpose of familial love. So let's tackle number one. What is the radical call that God gives familial love? I personally grew up in a context, maybe like a lot of you, where there was a pretty strong influence on traditional Korean values and culture with respect to the family. And basically what I picked up on at a very young age, and so parents know that no matter how young your kids are, they're absorbing everything. Because it's not like my parents taught me this, I just observed it. What I picked up on at a very young age was that, oh, the family unit seems to function where the dad is the top dog. He's the one to be feared. You shouldn't anger him. That's number one. Marriage seems to be this kind of interesting contract, or at least some sort of mutual agreement where the husband and wife, you got to like raise kids. <laughs> so you kind of just have to like, at least exist okay, maybe peaceable. That's kind of what marriage was. And parenting mainly meant uh, here and there, give your child rides and give them advice, but keep them alive, house them and feed them. Like that's like what it means to be a parent. Now, obviously this is an overgeneralization, but that's where man, young Sam had, he, I constantly had culture shock. I, my best friend was white in elementary school and his name is Billy Burton. I'll go to his house, completely different culture shock. Like, you know, at my house, I would use all these proper terminology when I'm talking to my parents. To him, his dad was just like Greg. I was like, what? Like, this is like culture shock, right? And so they're like best friends. And so there's nothing wrong with that. If I think part of the beauty of family is that it, it should and can look different for every family. But in the same way that artists, as creative as they are, they generally follow unspoken boundaries to what it means to create beautiful art. Ephesians 5, 6 gives general boundaries of Within those boundaries, you're free, but these boundaries are kind of what exists to tell you how Christians are to relate to one another in the family. 
And if I can summarize it, not my opinion, simply what the Bible says, according to the roles in the family, here are the basic calls that the Bible prescribes. Number one, as Ephesians says, husbands, they're to love their wives. Secondly, wives are to submit to and respect their husbands. Three, children are to honor their parents. And four, parents are to instruct and discipline their children in the Lord. Now, each of those sentences are loaded and have appropriate contextual nuances at face, but at face value, that is what the Bible says. At the bare bones, that is how God has designed and ordered the family unit to function, which in, in general circumstances includes a father, husband, mother, wife, and children. Now, for the purpose of today's message and this series, I actually want to mainly focus on husbands. And this is not planned on Father's Day, okay, because I would not have given this message on Father's Day normally, but there's a reason why. Because believe it or not, even though scripture obviously implies that all the members of the family should love one another throughout scripture, the only person in the family unit that is explicitly commanded to love in a particular way in the context of family is the husband. And as a husband myself, that is eyeball raising. And I'll, I'll share why I think this is the case later. And so now, even though I'm going to directly address husbands, as the text does, I hope even if you're not a husband, all of us can learn what is this kind of call that God gives to the overall family in love and how the husband and the, the father fits into this design for love within the family. Now, that being said, the very idea that the husband's primary familial responsibility was to love is a radical notion in a lot of ways, but especially to that cultural context. Because again, like we said, back then husbands, they ruled over the wives and every letter of the law protected that rule. Jewish, Greek, and Roman culture, both Christian, non-Christian, husbands legally owned their family and their wives. And in that culture, women legally, they had no rights. Not only that, everyone agreed husbands were at the sense of the top of the food chain, the family order. They deserved and demanded to be served. And even if the husbands were good moral men, if they had one word to describe their role and responsibility in the home, it would not have been love. It would have been to provide or to protect or to maybe lead. And what I would say is, as I really thought about this, all those things are important and significant for sure. But I would argue you can do those things. You can provide for, protect, and lead without love. But you cannot love without doing those things. So I actually think love is the more quintessential umbrella under which all the other responsibilities fall under. So with that being said, why does the Bible say husbands are to love if they could use one word to describe? And what is the nature of the type of love that husbands are called to? Remember, the family unit is God's artistic masterpiece. And beautiful art in the end of the day, it always reflects and points to its creator. And the reason the family unit is so significant is because it is the chosen and best relational arena that captures the essence of everything we need to know to understand and relate to God and to understand and relate to one another. I don't know if you've ever realized and thought about this. The scriptures fall apart if you don't understand the family. Let me explain this to you. The language of family is the basis for all vertical and horizontal understanding of scripture. How do we know this? God is our heavenly Father, family language. Jesus is his son, family language. We are called his children. Jesus is the husband. The church is the bride. Fellow Christians are best understood as brothers and sisters. And the church is described as the family of God. In other words, 
Properly understanding the design and language of family is like laying the foundation of a house. And if the foundation is not set properly, no matter how well built the home might seem, it will always be off. And so that's where personally, on a side note, if Satan gets your and your experience or your understanding of family and he tarnishes it, you can imagine your entire Christian life will be off. Your entire Christian living will be off. Your entire church relation will be off. Is all that is to say the reason husbands and fathers are called to love is because a God who is love must be reflected in some way, shape, and form. And in the family unit, the husband and the father is uniquely called to be the beacon that reflects Jesus' love for his church and by extension, the heavenly father's love for his children. And on this Father's Day, I hope amongst the celebrations, if you are a husband or a father, you would be terrified right now as I am. It is an absolutely high calling. And we know it's a high calling because the word used for love, as Pastor Tom mentioned last week, is not phileo love, which is like friendly brotherly love. It's not even storge love, which is natural familial affection that you have. It is agape love. And it says, husbands, love your wives with agape love. As we learned last week, about agape love, by definition, is foreign to us. We cannot love with agape love it is the unconditional sacrificial love that god himself shows if i can put it another way phileo story and eros they're human loves you don't need to be taught these things you kind of just you live them out as humans agape then is not human love it is divine love it means that it is foreign to you and it needs to either be taught experienced and filled into you for you to even get what it is let alone practice it and if that's not enough look at the qualifier in verse 25 Husbands, agape, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul says, what does this agape look like most practically? Uh, look at Jesus. The way that he agape loves the church is he gives himself up for her. Now, I want to take a little bit of time to talk about this idea of giving up. Okay, I'm going to get a little bit nerdy for you. The word for giving up there is this idea of parodidomite. And it's important to clarify a bit. The basic idea of when you parodidomite something, it is to surrender or give up willingly a right or an authority that you justifyingly possess. So let me explain what this might look like in the context of maybe a father or a husband. So particularly to the dads and husbands, say you had a long day at work, you're extremely tired, and you have every legitimate right to want to just rest or, or, or sleep. But suddenly your wife or your kids ask you, hey, can you do this? Can you do that? Or can you do something for me? Now, let me first... Uh, liberate the fact that if you're a normal human, okay, this is not abnormal, a normal human in that situation, the thoughts and the emotions that might flood your mind and your heart will be something like, do you know how much I've been through today? Do you know how many things I've done for you and our family recently that have not gone noticed or appreciated? When's the last time you did something for me? And what those thoughts are revealing are a very natural human approach to love, which if is best described as reciprocal humans by nature the way we practice and understand love it is a give and take it is a reciprocal love in other words you reciprocate according to what you have in your love tank and what you've been given in your love tank and that's just human nature but that's why the call to love is radical for the christian because agape love it is not reciprocal by nature it is reflected so even though you may feel those thoughts and feelings, and even though your love tank might be empty, 
out of agape love, you choose to parodidomai or give up the fact that you naturally feel the right to rest. And instead, you choose to tap into something else to continue to love. Now, let me make it clear. With that definition in mind, showing this type of love on a regular basis is humanly impossible. I hope no one out there is thinking, got it. Agape love, that's what I got to do. There is no fiber in your being that naturally can do this kind of love. And that's where it starts to understand you cannot do agape love because you are not divine. How can a fleshly human carnal being who only is used to doing reciprocal storge, phileo, and eros suddenly change and be able to divinely give that kind of agape love? It's impossible because it presupposes in present tense, this is only possible when the meaningful conviction of a divine calling has gripped you and the divine love that has been shown to you is the source that drives you by the power of not your flesh, but by the spirit to now reflect that divine love to your wife and to your family. In other words, it is impossible in the flesh. And this is just my personal opinion, but while all the familiar worlds are significant in their own way, I personally think there is a special emphasis placed on the husband's love because I think in God's design, the husband and father initiating love serves as somewhat of a spark plug to jumpstart marriage, to get the family rolling as it should, and to become what God desires in its beautiful form. And I stand before you guilty. <laughs> I mean, praise God as a preacher. I don't preach because I'm qualified and I do all these things. I preach because I respect and I submit to the word of God. And please, church, let me, if, if, there's, like, if I can say anything for myself or Tom or anyone who steps on our pulpit, please never gauge the authenticity and the weight of the truth of God's word based on how well we or don't keep it. Obviously, we do our best to keep it as best as we can. But if that is your gauge of what you should listen to according to the scriptures, you're not going to listen to nothing in like 10, 20 years. So that's just a side note, right? So yes, that's the radical call. Yeah, we should all love one another, obviously, in the family. But husbands have a special, unique call to agape love their wives and their family by extension in a reflective manner, which leads to the second point, the radical power of familial love. Let me ask you a simple question. Don't think too deeply. Where did you learn about love? And that sounds so cheesy, like what love is, what it feels like, uh, what it looks like, how it should be expressed. Now, the answer for the majority of people, whether you like to admit it or not, is simply you learned about love from your family. That's just a universal truth. And more specifically, we learned about love from actively, but more often than not passively, witnessing and observing our parents. One of the journeys I realized that almost everyone takes is first, they go through this phase where they get frustrated with all the shortcomings of their parents. And they go to this phase of saying, I'm never going to be like my parents. I want to separate some of my parents. In fact, I, I, I'm nothing like them. And then as you mature and you grow older and you realize, oh my, not only am I not like my parents, I'm exactly like my parents. And some of you find that out by just normal grace. Some would go through counseling. For my, me, myself, I did both of those things. And then you come to this general truth like, oh my gosh, I'm a lot like my parents. And more than that, uh, I pretty much am a carbon copy in a lot of ways, even though I hate to admit it. That's why counseling, no matter who you are, where you come from, they always place a lot of emphasis on family of origin. Because there's just this like objective connection that's going to be there with that. So let me give you a personal example. Growing up for me, I can count on my hand, and if you don't know what that phrase means, this means there's not that many times that I saw my dad hug my mom, kiss my mom, or even hold her hand. I don't have that many memories of him even verbally telling her directly, like, I love you. 
You know, one thing I did do see a lot, though, is him doing the dishes. <laughs> there were numerous times when in front of the whole family, and I hope he didn't do it because we're watching, but I'm, now that I think about it, maybe he did, right? So fair sequel tendencies. As the whole family's watching, he would head to the sink. And as he's doing the dishes, he would not even say to her, he would say to us, see how much I love your mom. I don't know why Asians do that. We can't encourage people directly. We always have to go through a third party. You guys notice that? And one of my favorite things is when we do encouragement times and you tell people you must encourage them directly. People get off fidgety, uncomfortable. So even when they're talking to them, they'll talk third person. So I'm like encouraging Shim. I'll be like, you guys know uh, Shim is, I'm like, tell it to him. There's something about that. Where did we get that from? We learned it. Now, I don't want to make it seem, right? But fast forward to today. When I want to express my love to my wife, Angela, do you know what literally feels like second nature to me? I head to the sink and I do the dishes. I take out the trash. I clean the house. Even though she has explicitly told me numerous times, Sam, as nice as those things are, I don't feel loved by those things. Now, do you know what is so hard for me to do? Even though Angela has expressed to me that she feels loved when I do these things, to verbally affirm her, to hug her, to kiss her on a regular basis. And again, I don't want to make it seem like I'm justifying myself because I do think that's my call. I should grow to love her in ways that she'll love. But what I am illustrating is there is an absolute weight and power and impact of family, familial love or the lack of it. And that's where we have to realize, man, the most regular and the most impactful arena for education for life, education for love, education for relationships that God himself has instituted is the family. There is simply no substitute for the powerful impact that a husband and father's intentional love leaves on his family. And that's where, man, let me just tell you, I can say this because I personally am a pastor's kid. I know there's some PKs in here, but it's like a sad truth that even PKs have to admit that so many PKs end up messed up. Like the, the pastor's kid is the one that you would think will be right, right? Because, I mean, imagine every pastor at some point in their career, like me, they're preaching Ephesians 5, the husband's got to love their wife and you got to care about your family. Then why is it that their own kids are always so messed up? Here's why. Because pastors, they are well-respected public figures in the church. But when they go home, that mode turns off. And ironically, pastors pour their time, energy, and love to love, equip, shepherd everyone but their own family. I don't know why that happens. That just happens. That's why so many PKs end up messed up. They say, my dad preaches love, but he doesn't show it. I never seen it. And you know what's scary? Pray for me, church. I find myself leaning into that tendency too. I share with our staff all the time. There's three hats that I wear. Pastor, uh, father, husband. And I always reverse the orders. It's like this curse that I have in my flesh. Pray that I get it right. Parents, where do your kids learn about God? If your answer is church, that's right and wrong. <laughs> there are 168 hours in a week. The best our education ministry could do is give you a two-hour education program. And I'm not trivializing what they do. Praise God for them. That's amazing. But in a 168-hour week, two hours is not formative. It is a minor blip in the sheer amount of hours that, guess what? Your kids spend with you, watching you, learning from you, observing you. And this is God's design. The family unit is supposed to be the formative, intentional arena of love and growth. Recently, uh, 
we talk about this as a staff. There's been what I would personally consider to be an almost depressing level of scandals that have come to light this past year when it comes to the Christian church, particularly Christian leaders and Christian pastors. And if you really do your homework and get to the bottom of these scandals, they rarely have to do with public ministry or giftedness or even a corporate reputation in the community. It almost exclusively has to do with marriage and family. Exclusively. Church, Christians, we don't graduate from the call to love our immediate families in a meaningful way. Whether it's loving your spouse, honoring your parents, or as parents, intentionally instructing and disciplining your children in the Lord. It's not like this is the white belt to Christianity, and it's a stepping stone for you to move on to bigger and better things for God or for your life. I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting to do impactful things in your life. But as I continue to digest God's word, man, if the family unit is the magnum opus of God's creative genius and design, it should be of utmost priority and importance in our lives to love our families well, to represent and reflect the beauty that God intended in his magnum opus. So recently we moved uh, Ezra, our son, to his own room, and he's been waking up like pretty dang early these past couple of days. So if Ezra could talk, I would tell him, like, I don't feel loved right now on Father's Day, buddy. You woke up way too early. <laughs> if you woke up at seven, I would have, like, showered him with love. But today he woke up at five. And so these past couple of days, I've been up a little bit earlier. And with this sermon in mind, uh, you know, there's only so many things you could do in the morning. So there's a, at least, like, a 10, 15-minute window. I just hold him, and we're just looking at the mirror, right? And I just tell myself, ah, cognitive development. But that's just me being, like, super tired. So we're just staring at the mirror. And I remember thinking, as morbid as it is, man, if I died, how would Ezra remember me? How would I want Ezra to remember me? That's just my personality, guys. Sorry about that. And I realized like, oh, wow, as cliche as it is, I realized the greatest legacy I could leave for him is just two things. If he only had two sentences to describe his dad, it's that man, that he can confidently say, my dad loved my mom in the best way that he could to reflect Christ. And that, that statement alone drives knives into my heart because I don't do that right now. And secondly, my dad the best, did the best that he could to love and instruct me in the way of the Lord. And I don't do that either. If those two things were there, I realized that if I, for any reason, feel like that is a cheap or insignificant legacy, that there was something left that I should have or could have done, something is absolutely distorted and twisted in my understanding of God's foundational call in my life. See, the type of love and the extent of love we show or we don't show, it has lasting power and impact in our families. And so before you venture beyond into the great unknown of your calling and career, start with your family. And I recognize that's a loaded statement. You know, that, that presumes, okay, well, maybe your family is a generally, you know, normal family, if I can put it that way. But I recognize there's so many different nuances and different variables you have to consider. But at the same time, it is the unit of family that God has placed you in. And it requires a wrestling and a figuring out of how you're called to practice this love in those particular ways. Now, up to this point, this is not new. If you've been a Christian for a long time, if, you, if you're new to the faith or you're checking it out, maybe, oh, I didn't realize that familial love is so emphasized. But if we're supposed to love in a manner that reflects God's love and we should understand there's power and weight, how is that Christian in the sense of, like, doesn't every good meaning husband and family want to love one another, understanding that it has like generational impact? Absolutely. So what makes it uniquely Christian? What's the purpose of it all? What is the end goal? Which leads to the final point, the radical purpose of familial love. 
what was the intended created purpose of the family unit according to God's design? Was it for a man or woman to passionately love one another and, and to build a family together, Lord willing, if he would allow to be happy, to be comfortable, to accumulate lots of good family traditions, like let's eat at the table together, uh, you know, let's go on vacations a lot. And, and or let's accumulate generational wealth so our, our families can be comfortable from generation to generation. Like, was that the created purpose? In other words, did God create families to kind of put a lid on the families and be like, you guys are a family, do your thing and protect one another and love one another? Short answer, no, absolutely not. It's sad to me that I feel like we don't use this phrase enough. The ultimate creational purpose for families was to glorify God. To live for the glory of God. He says it in its very inception. I've created you and in this unit to fill the earth with the glory and the knowledge of me, God, of Jesus, of the gospel. And the way that you do that is to love one another and to be fruitful and generation upon generation instill the Christian biblical values and worldview and gospel. And so therefore, love within so that you can effectively love without blessed to be a blessing that has always been God's creational design to not just make your family beautiful, but to allow your family to help other families become beautiful. And I realized for our church in particular, this is the greatest battleground of familial love. Because I look at our church, and I think we have a lot of loving families, a lot of loving husbands, a lot of loving parents. I praise God and I thank him for that. But if we have love that looks no different than any good, moral, loving family, like if someone could look at you and think, this guy might be Christian, but he very well may be Mormon. There's something off. <laughs> There's something terribly wrong about that. In fact, Mormons love far better than we do. Let me tell you that. They are like the nicest people on the planet. Like, I don't know what it is about them, but they're so nice. They're so loving. So praise God that we're defined by grace and not our works. But if you look back at Ephesians, the explicit, the motive, it's not hidden. It is explicit. The aim and goal of familial love is always Christ, to point the family back to Christ. Husbands are to love their wives like Christ, because of Christ, and more importantly, to love their wives and their children towards Christ. Now, I'm not going to do an exegesis, but simply verse 25, 26, 27, it's a husband, love your wives, the Christ of the church, so that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of the word to present her in splendor without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, that she might be holy. In other words, husbands, and I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of both of what I'm about to say. If you have beautiful and romantic weekly date nights, and you've mastered all five love languages somehow, and you are a guru of love and romance, and you show them meaningfully to your wife, but you don't care for, and you don't pray for, and you don't spiritually lead your wife and your family towards Christ, and his purposes, let me first and foremost say you have a good marriage, but you don't have a godly marriage. You might be a loving husband, loving father, but you are not a godly one. Same goes for wives. The language of scripture, wives all the more. I hope wives are not thinking right now, like I have loaded up my bazooka of ammunition to have to blast it on my husband. I hope that's not your approach. It's not. Now, obviously, I can't spend the time to go into wives, but quite simply, the language of scripture for why wives should respect their husbands is not because husbands are so respectable. Let me tell you, after being a husband, 
men, we could be douchebags. We can be mean. We could be cold. We could be forgetful. There's probably 99 more reasons why you, you choose not to respect them. And if scripture said you should respect them in moments they're respectable, you'll never respect them. But it says do it for Jesus' sake. As to the Lord. Because something about when the family unit is vertically informed and not horizontally reciprocated, that's when the artistic beauty begins to play itself out. And it might take a lifetime. It takes time. Beautiful art takes time. And for our parents, our aim in discipline and instruction, it's not just good morals or to make them smart or to make sure to get good grades, as great as those things are. It is to pray that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving grace through the gospel, that they would be shaped and formed by God's word as they grow to maturity. In other way, the truest way that we love our family as the people of God is that we attach a direction to that love and we shoot that direction Godward towards Christ. In our love, here's how Christ informs every aspect of our love. In our love, we should aim to reflect Christ. In our parenting, we should aim to teach Christ. In our marriages, we should aim to point each other towards Christ. And when we find no good reason to love in the other person, and our families are getting on our nerves, we should continue to love with agape love because of Christ. And when we lack the energy and strength to carry on, because we had a bad day or a bad week, or I'm just really angry for some reason, we prayerfully press on and persevere by the power of Christ that resides us within the spirit. In other words, without Christ, you cannot follow this. It's impossible. Do not try to say, I'm going to muster up strength. And maybe if you're father, oh, today's Father's Day, I'm going to make a list of one, two, three, and this is not going to work. You can't do it. Same for wives. It is impossible in your flesh to try to submit to and respect a husband who's being a douchebag or who's being mean to you or has not loved and cared for you. It is impossible. So don't even try. It's not going to work. Husbands or parents, your natural human impulse is you're going to want your kids to just be popular, to not be uncomfortable, to have a lot of good friends, to get decent grades. That's your natural human impulse. It is not natural to you as parents to say, I wish salvation upon my children. That is a godly thing. And it has to come from God. So a few practical applications as we close. So therefore, husbands, wives, children, parents, whatever context you find yourself in, whether you are in that situation, whether you're heading towards that situation one day, How's your love been for God and for these people? Now, final closing. If you ask me, therefore, Pastor Sam, so what is God calling me to? What is he calling me to do? Practical application. What I can say is I can't speak for other stuff, but every time somebody asks me that question, I'm all the more convicted just by sheer feasibility and proximity. I can tell you, I don't know about other stuff, but right now God is calling you to love your family. 100%. He is always calling you to love your family. And as we close, if, you, if I can offer a word of encouragement, like we mentioned earlier, well, maybe for you to say, well, you don't know my family, Pastor Sam. It's extra tough. It's always been tough. I don't have a full family unit. It's just extremely difficult in this season, or it's always going to be extremely difficult. That's where I say, well, that's why the language of family, as much as I wanted to find a lot of texts that talk about the immediate nuclear family, it is overwhelmingly more about the family of God. Did you know that? Like I almost had to like snipe out verses that are more exclusive to your immediate family because that is God's answer for the orphans who are alienated, for those who don't have a father, for those who don't have a mother. 
Because again, Jesus, the whole familial gospel message is we were all orphans without a home, as we sang today. That was not planned, by the way. Thank you, Brother Sam. But Jesus parodidomized, gave up his rightful status and position as the son of God, so that, amongst other things, we can all be adopted and welcomed into a family of God. And so that's where, if I can present another vision for our church, how amazing and beautiful would it be if our church truly functioned and lived like the family of God that God created? Where people who don't have fathers or mothers can walk into our doors and feel welcomed and embraced by older brothers and sisters in the faith. Where they can, with genuine conviction, say, I don't have a, a, a complete immediate family, but it is filled by the family of Christ. Where widows and orphans can feel like they have siblings and brothers and sisters who know them and care for them. So all that is to say the church is the larger family of God. And we can only meaningfully love the family of God when we realize that step one and the backbone of our church community is when we first love in our own family context. And that only is going to happen, that correlation will only happen when, again, you don't cap your family love, you don't separate your family love, but you connect it. You love your family, you disciple your family into loving the greater family of God, not for ourselves or our own comfort, but with the glory of God. Let's pray together.